Well, Friday night, if you were here, we spent an hour or so together reflecting on Jesus' crucifixion. Specifically, we looked at a number of different texts that helped us to understand that Jesus would suffer and die, and then how he suffered and how he died. And we spent time looking at Scripture, discovering what that means. We also took the Lord's Supper together Friday night. And we remembered how, like the bread, Jesus' body was broken. And like the cup, his blood was shed for us for the sin of all who believe. That was Friday. And since Friday, the hopes of some of Jesus' followers were likely fading. And so much of what they had hoped that Jesus would be and what Jesus would do must have seemed, at least to many, like some sort of futile pipe dream. He was now dead. Maybe he was just like every other so-called Messiah who, who entered the scene and who made a big splash and who said some things, but then who suffered and who died at the hands of the Romans or even by their fellow Jews. And there had many, there had come many before Jesus like that. Maybe some of them wondered if Jesus was just another one of those so-called messiahs. That was Friday. That was maybe even Saturday. But this is Sunday. This is the third day. And on this day, the Bible tells us that two women named Mary and a woman named Joanna or Salome, depending on your translation, went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. And when they got there, they found that the tomb was empty. And an angel said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then that very Jesus appeared alive to his friends. They saw him. And they ate with him and they touched him. It really was Jesus. He really was alive. And so this morning, we celebrate with churches all around the globe the fact that Jesus is not dead, but Jesus is, in fact, very much alive. And so what I want to do now in the next 40 minutes or so, before we kind of move ahead in our thinking to meal plans and getting together with friends and family and what the rest of the day has in store, what I want us to do is to understand why the resurrection of Jesus is necessary. And my guess is that most of us in this room know about Jesus' death. We even know why Jesus died. And while many of us know that God the Father raised God the Son back to life, I think it's sometimes less clear why Jesus was raised to life. Like, what difference does it make that Jesus was raised to life? 
I don't know about you, but I spent the first number of years as a Christian not being able to answer that question. I understood why Jesus died, but if you had said, why is it important that Jesus was raised back to life, I'd say, um, because he did. (laughs) So what I want to do this morning is to look at why Jesus was raised to life. Because, as you heard in the the scripture text that Darren just read for us this morning, the resurrection isn't just an epilogue at the end of the gospel message. Like, it's not just a, oh yeah, and Jesus was raised to life and they all lived happily ever after. As though the real power of the gospel is Jesus' death and the resurrection is just like a footnote at the bottom. That's not at all how the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is essential. Like no resurrection, no salvation. It's that important. And that's not my original thought. It's actually what God himself tells us through scripture. So what I want to do this morning is to prove this point. No resurrection, no salvation. So I want to highlight from scripture, why the resurrection is essential and what it means for us today. And we're gonna do that primarily from our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, as you look at the text, Darren did a great job of setting it up for us, reminding us that this is a text written by the Apostle Paul and he's writing, oddly enough, to the church in the city of Corinth. Now, apparently, there were some who were a part of the the church there in the city who were doubting this whole idea of resurrection life. Like, many of them acknowledged that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they denied that there was any sort of resurrection for Jesus' followers. So they denied that there was any correlation between Jesus' resurrection and our own resurrection as Christians one day when Jesus returns and we are raised with new resurrected bodies. And so Paul writes this part of the letter to combat that, that false teaching. And he does so by connecting Jesus' resurrection with our own resurrection as believers. But he begins by setting up just how important this topic of Jesus' resurrection truly is. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. (laughs) Talk about a, a setup, right? I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preached, that you received, and in which you stand if you continue steadfastly in the faith. There's not really many ways Paul could have given an exclamation point at the beginning of this teaching better than that. This is the gospel preached by the church. Not only by the the early church, but by the church for 2,000 years. What Paul is about to say is important. Because it's 
the gospel preached by the church. It's also important because this is the gospel, Paul says, that was received by the church. And this is the gospel by which the church is being saved. And just in case any in his audience then or his audience now think that salvation is just simply mental assent or some sort of one-time decision, Paul makes it clear to us that saving faith is a persevering faith. It's, it's an enduring faith that endures to the end. That's what Paul means here by, if you hold fast to the word preached unless you believed in vain. Paul is warning them of a shallow faith and reminding them that salvation requires a continuity of faith and belief, which is something that is assured for those whose faith is genuine. What Paul is doing is he's trying to remind these in Corinth to cling to the eternal truths that he is about to remind them of. So he's saying, listen, this is really important. Because what I am about to, to pass on to you is the truth that I have spent my life declaring and preaching to you. These are the truths that you have received as a church along with the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the very truths by which you are eternally saved. So Paul's audience in Corinth as this letter was being read, we're likely thinking, okay, hurry up, keep reading, tell us, what is it that is that important, that is that significant? And Paul tells us clearly, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, don't miss the fact that this gospel message is something that Paul is delivering. So the, the words there that, that Paul uses are kind of recognized language for what someone does when they pass on a body of information from one person to the next. And Paul, again, for the second time now, reminds them just how important this is. He says, I passed on to you of first importance. So this gospel message that we're about to unpack, that Paul is very clear about, he says, is of first importance. Like, that's a big deal. It doesn't mean that the gospel is the only important thing, but it means that the gospel message itself is the most important thing. That's a huge statement. Of all the things that Paul knew, of all the things that Paul experienced, he said, this is most important. Why? Because this is the message of transformation. This gospel message of Jesus Christ is the most important reality in our church and in the churches of Jesus Christ around the world in all of our lives because this is the good news of great joy. This is the power of God for salvation to all who believe according to Romans 1.16. And so I'm grateful, as you should be as well, that Paul is really explicit here. 
In fact, given the literary structure of the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4, it becomes clear that Paul is really, it seems, passing on kind of an early church creedal statement or confessional statement that probably goes back to just within several months of Jesus' ascension. Jesus going back to the Father. This is something that the churches would repeat together. It was a, it's probably the, the earliest form of a statement of faith. And Paul is passing this on as the central components of the gospel message. Look again at the, the mid part of verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul tells us that the gospel message is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The Bible interprets for us a historical reality. Like Jesus died historically, yes, but he died theologically for our sins. So in verses 3 and 4, we don't merely have a historical record. We have theological interpretation. He died, yes, he died for our sins. That's important. He didn't just physically die, but he died as the perfect substitute for the sin of all who believe. He died, according to John... John chapter 1, verse 29, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he died. That's why he entered into our world, born as a baby, born in Bethlehem, and lived as a human for 33 years on earth, fully man and fully God, and he was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin, not even once. So that when he willingly went to the cross and when he willingly died, he could die actually not for his own sin because the wages of sin is death, because he had no sin, he was able to die for all who had sinned and who trust in him. He's the one who died in our place to take away our sin, for our sin. That is the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for our sins. But that's not the only part of the gospel message. Paul continues that Jesus Christ was buried. In other words, he was really dead. <laughs> he didn't just swoon. He didn't just pass out. He didn't just go unconscious. But he really died. And think about the Romans. Anything you know about the Romans from the first century. They were experts in torture. They were experts in capital punishment. And when they crucified someone, that someone really died. And until Jesus, they really stayed dead. Jesus Christ was buried. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Paul also adds Jesus Christ was raised to life on the third day. God the Father raised God the Son to life, just as Pastor Matt read for us in our text when we opened our time of worship together. And all of this, Paul says, is according to the Scriptures. All of this was planned and predicted by God through various passages in the Bible. 
In fact, we don't have time this morning to do a deep dive here, but let me just remind you of our primary text when we gathered this past Friday night. From Luke chapter 18, Jesus, looking ahead to the cross, he was about to surrender his life to be arrested, to be tortured, and to be executed. Luke 18, 31, Jesus, taking the 12, said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And the Old Testament also spoke about the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus and Peter and Paul oftentimes quoted from these Old Testament passages about the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Even passages like Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53. But you might be wondering this morning, well, how can we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? It'd be really important that we actually know that Jesus rose from the dead. How can we know that? Well, again, we don't have time to kind of evaluate all of the evidence. We could do a series of sermons about all the evidence, but let's just look at one strand of evidence that Paul gives us here as he continues. So he's given us the gospel in verses three and four. Now he gives us the evidence that Jesus really did come back to life. Verse 5, and that he appeared, Jesus appeared to Cephas, uh, Paul says, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." You see what Paul's doing here, right? He's not just telling us that Jesus is alive, take my word for it. He's also naming names. He's telling us about people whom those in Corinth would know and whom were still alive when the church in Corinth reads this letter. He's like, hey, if you have any questions, just go ask them. Let me name some names here. And so he tells us that Jesus appeared alive to Peter or to Cephas, as he was sometimes known, one of Jesus' closest friends, someone who had ministered with Jesus for years now. And Jesus also appeared to his closest circle of friends and ministry partners, the twelve. And then Jesus appeared to a huge crowd all at one time, more than 500 and Paul tells us most of them are still alive. Other, in other words, go ask them for yourselves. And then Jesus appeared to his brother James. 
Keep in mind that James, during Jesus' earthly ministry, did not believe in Jesus. His own earthly brother, his half-brother, did not believe that he was the Messiah. And yet after he sees Jesus alive, after the resurrection, James believes and he actually becomes a leader in the church. And later church history tells us that he dies, he's martyred for the faith. He's willing to die for the cause of Christ because he knew the truth that Jesus was really alive, that Jesus was really raised from the dead. Then Paul tells us Jesus appeared alive to all the apostles, and then he appeared to Paul himself. Paul, who formerly had been a terrorist against Christians, hunting them down that he might kill them. And yet immediately his life is changed His direction turns 180 degrees and he becomes a missionary and church planter and he later dies for the faith as well. And again, most of these people are still living. They're still alive when Paul is writing this. So it was possible for any of them to to fact check Paul. So we can be confident that Jesus rose from the dead according to to the scriptures and that it was validated. But let's go back to our central theme, which is why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, Jesus rose from the dead. Why does it matter? Remember, Paul is writing to people who are questioning, even doubting whether Christians will be resurrected. Some are saying, yeah, okay, Jesus was resurrected, we we get it, we believe, but that has nothing to do with our resurrection. There is no resurrection for us. We have life, and we die, and that's it. Or we die, and then we live in some sort of disembodied state. Maybe they had bought into the Neoplatonic or Gnostic ideas that material things like flesh and blood and skin and The physical reality is somehow evil and wicked, and that which is spiritual is good. So the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics, and and even some in Christianity today, teach almost the same idea that, that that which is inside of us is good, and our body is just sort of this shell in which our true self is actually trapped, rather than the fact that we were actually created by God to be embodied. And that the only time as Christians we are not embodied is when we die before Jesus returns and for a while we exist, our soul exists with Christ until he returns. But even that disembodiment is only a result of the fall. We were created to be embodied. And the Bible is clear and Paul wants to make the point clearly that we will forever as Christians be embodied in the new heavens and the new earth. That there is a resurrection for us to come as well. So he does that by proving that Jesus has been raised from the dead and then connecting that to their own resurrection. R.C. Sproul wrote, Paul needed to show them that the resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated from, from the resurrection of those who are his. 
If their resurrection is not true, neither is his. But to deny, even by implication, that Jesus' body was raised from the tomb destroys the message of the gospel. So to make Paul's point, I love what he does here because he plays almost a bit of a game with them. It's like he says, okay, you say that there is no resurrection. Let's just, let's just tease that out a little bit. Let's just see how that works for a moment. Look at verse 12. Now, he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul draws out some implications here. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, there are some serious consequences. Just look at the rundown here. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, Paul writes, then our preaching is in vain. The word there for vain is, is used a couple of times and it's, it means empty or without content or untrue. Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, our preaching is untrue. But not only is our preaching untrue, your faith is untrue. Notice, your faith is in vain. Because the truth of the Christian message is tied to the historical reality of Christ's death and resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection and your faith is vain. It's empty. Also, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, the apostles and the disciples and the teachers are, Paul says, misrepresenting God. He's saying we're just a bunch of liars if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. It continues to get worse. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then your faith is futile. It means it's lacking in content. Like You can have faith, sure. And even today, people love to talk about faith. I think... A lot of times people like to have faith in faith, right? I just believe to believe in what I believe in. What do you believe in? I believe in faith. Okay. And Paul says your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The ESV study Bible note helpfully says the proof that Jesus' death was an effective substitutionary sacrifice for sins lies in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If in fact Christ has not been raised, then his death did not pay for sin and there is no hope for life with God in heaven. You are still in your sins. Because Jesus is still somehow suffering for sins or he's not truly the Messiah. He's not divine because he said he would rise from the dead and he didn't. But not only that, Paul says, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then Christians who've already fallen asleep have perished. Now that 
term fall asleep is used frequently in the New Testament to refer to Christians who have physically died. So it's not talking about people who fell asleep like we would talk about falling asleep, like, hey, this morning my husband fell asleep in church or something like that, which is not true of any of you, of course. It's used to refer to Christians who have died physically, but because we've not perished, we've not ceased to exist We're just asleep until the day when Christ returns and we are awakened physically and reunited with Christ. Paul says here, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christians who have physically died have actually perished. There's no hope for them. There's no resurrection to come. And finally, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we only have hope in this life and therefore we ought to be pitied. Our only hope is in the here and now if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And all of this, all of faith, all of Christianity is just a cruel joke, and so we ought to be pitied for our false hope. Because we're still in our sins and all is lost. As Jared Wilson wrote, if the resurrection isn't true, we should all stay home because religion makes a lame hobby. It's pretty bleak, huh? You might be thinking, well, why is this true? Like, why is that true about the resurrection? Because I thought we have life because Jesus died on the cross for the sin of all who believe. So why does it make a difference that Jesus rose from the dead? Like, here's why it makes a difference that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he had not risen from the dead, then he would not be God. Because God is perfect and God is holy, and God is sinless. And Jesus himself said on more than one occasion, I am going to die, I am going to be raised from the dead on the third day. So if Jesus was not raised from the dead, he's a liar. This is why theologians throughout the generations have said, Jesus is either the Messiah, the Son of God, or he is a fraud and a liar and a cheat. We cannot settle for the fact that Jesus was just a good teacher because a good teacher would not lie about his identity in such a blatant way. But more than that, the resurrection makes a difference because if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then he would not only not be God, but he would not be able to atone for the sin of those who believe. If he were a liar, he would sin, and therefore his death would be the penalty for his own sin, because the wages of sin is death. And this is why God the Father raised God the Son to life, because he is the Son of God, because he was perfect and is perfect and is sinless, because sin was paid in full. Like Jesus did not have to suffer forever for sin because he was the perfect sacrifice. That perfect sacrifice which was offered was the the full measure of uh, full payment for the sin of all who believe. 
It's what wasn't necessary for Jesus to continue to suffer. Which is why when you and I sin, even now, even though as Christians we fight against our sin and we go to war against our sin and against temptation, but even when as Christians we sin, it's not as though Jesus has to be crucified again. Like, I guess I need to come back to earth and die on the cross again. No, because he paid for sin in full. He was the perfect acceptable sacrifice and he is victorious even over death verse 26 tells us that death is the final enemy and Jesus has defeated even the final enemy Daniel Aiken writes Christ's resurrection is essential for our salvation it is God's amen to Christ's it is finished if Christ is not raised then death has not been conquered that's why the resurrection is so essential for us. I love this helpful analogy from Ian, our pastoral assistant this week. He said the resurrection is not like a spring on a trampoline where you can just kind of take out one of the springs and the trampoline still functions. Now, I don't recommend that as a parent. We all know, realistically, we've probably been there before and the, one of the springs falls off. Like, ah, you're fine, kids. It's still going to work. The, the resurrection is not like that. Paul is clear that this is a live or die doctrine. Because we see that the weight of this doctrine is tethered to the rest of Scripture. Our doctrine is interconnected. It's all related. And it's all related to and through the resurrection. Because the resurrection was the plan of our triune God before the beginning of time. To raise his son from the dead. This is why it's so important for us to see what the resurrection means and what it does. Let's look at Paul's argument now as he provides the final solution. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the guarantee, we have the down payment, we have all the evidence we need that God is powerful and will accomplish the final and ultimate defeat of death. He's proven it by raising his son from the dead. And so because Jesus has been raised, he is the first fruits of our resurrection. The resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. It's like the farmer or the gardener and you go to your garden and you get the, the first bit of the, of, the, of the crops, of the harvest, and those first fruits then demonstrate what the rest of the harvest will be like. Oh, it's going to be a really good harvest. It's going to be a really bad harvest. And Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is like that first fruit. That we can see 
the kind of resurrection that we will have when we are raised with Christ, with glorified bodies, to spend eternity with Christ in new resurrection bodies. We see in the resurrection that God the Father is powerful to accomplish the salvation from death of all who believe. We can see that death will not have the final answer, that Jesus is victorious. You see, it matters that Jesus rose from the dead because his resurrection becomes the template for the resurrection to come for every Christian. That just like we all in Adam died and we all in Adam have sinned, we all through the second Adam, through Jesus Christ, will receive resurrection. We already have spiritually as God has taken us from death to life, as he's transplanted our hard cold heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. But that's not the only resurrection to come for we who are in Christ. There is a resurrection to come when we will receive glorified bodies. And this is the hope we need, isn't it? Amid trying times, suffering, adversity, Confusion, fatigue, sickness, pain. This is the truth that we cling to. That Jesus has overcome. That the blood of the Lamb is sufficient. And that God raised his Son from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death. And we have received resurrected hearts, resurrected souls. And one day we too will receive resurrected bodies. That is what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. Would you stand with me? The musicians are going to come. We're going to prepare to celebrate this truth this morning, that Jesus is alive. Would you pray with me? Father, we are forever changed because you raised your son from the dead. Because you, you in love, purposed and planned to save a people from every tribe and nation and language. Because you accomplished that saving work in the fullness of time by sending your son into our world who lived without sin, who died willingly as a substitute in our place and who was raised from the dead on the third day. Showing us that good and evil, light and dark, you and Satan are not just dueling equal forces, but you are truly sovereign. You are truly in control. You are truly victorious. And we who belong to you will reign with you forever. That there is a hope beyond the grave. 
So we thank you for that hope this morning. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means we are no longer in our sins. We are no longer alienated and cut off from you. We are no longer to be pitied. Father, thank you. We worship you now in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.